Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. And welcome, everybody, to Paul Listening Behind the Curtain, stepping away from my political role on television, as I like to do on this podcast, where I'm unveiling, by the way, this new cool background behind me. Let me know what you think. Yes, acknowledging 100 years of WGN Radio. And as we go behind the curtain, back to the world of entertainment, as I love to do on this show. And joining me for this episode is Sean Levy. Now, he's an incredible author, journalist. He has written so many different books that I've read over the past, books on Jerry Lewis and the Rat Pack and on and on. But he has a new book. He was featured on the WGN Morning News. And I realize now with my brand new background, this won't show up. So the <laughs> I don't know why. But the book is called The Original Queens of Stand up comedy in on the joke and uh i just when i saw uh, you sean on our morning news i said i gotta talk to you because a i love the world of comedy b female comedians are the best and that somebody finally wrote a book on this topic fantastic so thank you congratulations on writing the book well thanks so much i'm, I'm delighted to share it with you and as i said i was very, i've written read your book of jerry lewis and i've seen uh, the rat path books one of the things i thought that was interesting that caught my attention and apparently yours too is that so many of your books have to do with men and apparently you heard from your daughter and your partner that maybe uh, dad it's time to take a look at the powerful women in this country that's right and and i've been looking for that opportunity for a few books now and it just didn't happen um i did a book that came out in 2016 called dolce vita confidential which featured sophia loren prominently about Rome in the 50s. And I thought, oh, no one's written a good book on Sophia Loren, but I couldn't get any publishers in New York interested in doing that book with me. So I kept sharking around. And then the idea for this book emerged from something entirely different. And I seized the opportunity. And so glad you did. And I have to say, before I read the book, and I have read the book, I thought to myself, I'm going to know every name in here. I, I grew up with Tody Fields and, and the fact that you went with her. I, went, I, I got this down. I'm going to know everybody. I did not know all the names in the book. And we'll walk through that a little bit. But first, I want to just set a couple of parameters if I can. Because one of the things you sort of mentioned, I mean, depending on people's age, um, you know, oh, female comedians been around forever. They've been acknowledged and respected forever. You make the point in the book and all you have to do is read some of your quotes from Johnny Carson and Jerry Lewis to actually recognize women comedians weren't so welcome in the past. No, no. Um, really, the, uh, up until about 1958 or 60, there were only three or four women at all working in what we would recognize as stand-up comedy. And most of them had to do it through some sort of costume. Uh, Mom's Mabley, dressing like an, an old granny, even when she was in her 30s. Minnie Pearl, who was a college-educated woman from Tennessee, who put on the character of a, a country rube to do her comedy. With the hat um, with the little, we're going to talk about her, but the hat with the little uh, price tag on it. Right, right. And, you know, so even to do stand-up at all, to be a woman, they had to do something to themselves. You know, they had to signal very broadly to the audience, oh, I'm not here to sing. I'm not going to take my clothes off and dance. I'm going to tell you jokes. So they had to come out dressed like a clown. By the way, there's what this comes way late in the book, but it just hit me now. It, it's a Jerry Lewis comment where he was making a point to to a female comedian about 
you know, they should sort of, you know, do the thing, wait in the next room and I'll give them a big hug. Right. You know what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, yeah. And you made the comment because you, you knew Jerry Lewis, you, you wrote a book about him. And you went, that line never happened. No, no. Jerry Lewis did not use the word hug when talking about women. <laughs> he was, uh, if there had been me too in the 1960s, Jerry Lewis's career would have been very brief. Uh, probably true for a lot of those guys actually back yeah, then. And, but- and in fact, somebody did a, 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 an expose last year on Jerry Lewis and found a lot of the young actresses he spoke to, some of whom I spoke to, but we did not uh, run their stories back in 1996 when, when my bio of him came out because we were on his radar and he was looking for a means to sue us. Ah, wow. Okay. Well, but he never did. No, no, he can't sue over the truth. It's, it's, it's a good point. And, and it was no. a great book, by the way. I, I really oh, enjoy it. I'm a big Jerry Lewis fan. So I just really enjoyed reading that. Um, and always disappointed when you hear things about people you've admired through the years and realize maybe they weren't the perfect person we had hoped they would be. Yeah, Jerry did a lot of good in his life. I mean, his work with muscular dystrophy, his creation of, of um, what new ways to make films, which is legit. And, you know, he deserves like Hall of Fame status for for that. And, you know, he he, he was a, a an important film comedian. He bridges the years between, you know, Charlie Chaplin and Jim Carrey. He's the yeah. guy. Um, but let's focus on the women because that, that's our mission. And um, the one other question I want to raise, because when people read this book, you know, you can't help. I'm thinking to myself, who am I going to read about? Who are you going to cover? And I understand, I think, why you didn't do this, but I'm going to just three names I want to run by you. People like Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett. I'm assuming they're not covered because they weren't stand up comedians. Right. They were they were sketch comics and comic actresses. And, and um, you know, even the word comedian, E-N-N-E, is sometimes used for someone who sings and does humor. So that would suit Carol Burnett. And I, I admire those women you know, tremendously, and, and they were hugely important in the history of American show business. But they didn't do what they call in show business, act in one, just be on stage alone with a microphone and a hostile potentially audience in front of you and have to you know, use your wits and your energy and your reservoir of of, you know, savoir faire and, you know, sort of um, just just comedy is the only form of art that we have where the audience is sort of encouraged to heckle the performer. And, you know, Carol Burnett never got heckled. Lucille Ball never got heckled. Joan Rivers, Phyllis Diller, Moms Mabley, they had to talk back to the audience at times. So, And, and by but, the way, so did Minnie Pearl. We'll talk about that. But she had a moment and she didn't handle the heckling very well uh, as you, you know, write you know, about it. Early early in her career, you know, Minnie Pearl, um, I grew up in New York. I live now in Portland, Oregon. I've always lived on the coasts. And I did not, when I were, went into this project, have much of an opinion about Minnie Pearl. I thought of her as the gal from Hee Haw, yeah. the shtick with the hat. And, you know, the howdy, it was not for me. And then before I said she doesn't belong in the book, I learned about her and did a lot of research. And my goodness, not only did she belong in the book, she sort of created some of the venues that other women have followed. And she may have been the most popular entertainer of all the women I profiled simply because for 50 years, she played Grand Old Opry and Hee Haw, state fairs, county fairs. She was all over the country. She could play on a Saturday night on the radio to a bigger audience than some of these other women would perform in front of in an entire year. 
I agree. And I had the same reaction to growing up with her on Hee Haw and all of that. And I was, I, I understood why she was in the book, but I went, really? And then, then it made all sense. It made a lot of sense when I read it. One other name I want to ask you about, and this got triggered in my mind because you do write about Elaine May. A lot of people associate Elaine May with her work with Mike Nichols for all the obvious reasons, but it made me wonder and think back about Gracie Allen. Might Gracie Allen have been included here? Gracie Allen could have been, but she never performed on her own. Elaine May didn't perform on her own either, but for Elaine, I put in an asterisk because she created, she was at the Constitutional Convention of Improv Comedy in Chicago at the Compass Theater, which became Second City. She was in that cast from the first night. She was widely considered the best writer and the best performer in the troupe. And when they finally sat down, some of the brains behind Compass and SC, uh, Second City, she was one of the people who formulated, okay, this is what improv is, and this is what it's not. And when she and Mike Nichols broke away from that troupe and came on their own to New York, they created a sensation. They, you know, during during a very short window, their career was only about three, five years. They were the biggest thing in comedy. So even though it's not technically stand-up, I thought it belonged in the book, whereas Gracie Allen belonged to a long vaudeville tradition that preceded and postdated her. I think Lucille Ball is playing the Gracie Allen role in Lucy and Desi. Um we see it also in uh, one of the women I write about, Jean Carroll. She began in a boy-girl act, as it was known, with the man who became her husband, Buddy Howe. And she, Jean was the funny one, and Jean was the writer. But the character she played in that, in that act was what they called in vaudeville the dumb Dora, which is the girl who, who misunderstood everything or said the goofy thing, and the man would be the long-suffering partner. And... While it's comedy, it's not stand-up. So Gracie Allen, a genius, a great comedian, she fell into that camp. I, I, very rarely did she perform on her own in the way that I kind of required of these women. Fair enough. And I have to say, by the way, Jean Carroll is one of the one people I want to talk about because I, I, maybe I should be embarrassed to admit that that was a name I didn't really know and, uh, and felt I should have. And so before I talk to you, I mean, when I read the book, there I went to YouTube and I watched a bunch of her routines and all that to catch myself up and kind of wondered why I hadn't heard of her. Well, I brought her up. So let's just for a moment, I, I don't, I keep taking myself off track here, but why don't I know Jean Carroll? You know, Jean Carroll is the first woman in, in the chronology of my book who performed as herself on stage. She wore couture gowns. She did one-liners about her no-good husband and her rotten kid and about pushy sales ladies and snobby people she'd meet at restaurants or resorts, very similar to what, say, Alan King or Bob Hope or Milton Berle was doing, but she was the only woman doing it. And her career began in vaudeville when she was uh, pre-adolescent. Um, and, and she performed for almost 50 years, and she never quite broke through. And her career was on the decline, partly because she was tired of it, when the other big stars in my book were just gaining momentum, Phyllis Stiller, Toadie Fields, Joan Rivers. By 1965, Jean Carroll had stopped performing. And I didn't know her name either. In fact, uh, when the subject of the book was proposed to me, my agent was telling me, well, this is what they'd like you to do. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. And he said, and I can get you Jean Carroll's granddaughter. And we're on the phone and I'm like, great. And meanwhile, I'm Googling Jean <laughs> Carroll because I have no idea who she is. And right there, when I saw her perform, I was like, oh, my God, she's she is the true pioneer. 
um, because she didn't put herself on stage as a clown. She was her own woman. Well, I feel better, actually, since you had that answer. And by the way, am I right? She was going to get was supposed to get a TV show. I think she had one for just a few weeks and then it got canned. A couple of months in the early 1950s, she was on ABC, which at that time was was, uh, you know, the, the distant third place among the national networks. And they never got a sponsor. They tried to do a George Burns show thing where she would stop and look at the camera and talk to the audience and tell jokes about the sitcom. But she felt straitjacketed. She wasn't allowed to write her own material, even though she'd been doing that for almost 40 years at that point. And uh, even with her husband, who was a big agent and the the, uh, dean of the Friars Club, she didn't have the support behind her to sustain that program. And and she she soured on television, never went back. She did appear on the Ed Sullivan show about 30 times. The numbers are inexact. I tried to find all the rosters, but she was often booked as a last minute replacement for someone else because her husband was an agent and he would hear about someone canceling and he'd say, get your dress. We're going down to the studio. (laughs) She should have gone in the game show circuit. Uh, Before I get into the individuals you talk about, or at least some of them, because I want people to read the book. Uh, But one of the things that I learned is, and I kind of knew this, but, but it really, you really hit it home. The fact that for a woman to make it in those days as a comedian, fifties, sixties, maybe beyond all of a sudden you're right. They had to have a costume. Most changed their names. Moms Mabley is their name is not Moms Mabley. Very few kept their real names. It was having to create a persona. Was it about because you can't live like the men live in this world of comedy? So you've got to do something like change, put on a costume and which Moms, Moms Mabley was where you opened the book, the first person. That's what she did. Yeah, you you know, you had to make it very clear to the audience that you were there to tell jokes. One of my abandoned titles for the book was Why Isn't She Singing? Because if a woman stepped up to the microphone alone in a nightclub or on a vaudeville stage, you expected her to sing. And these women, some of them began their careers singing a little. Toadie Fields was a singer and she sang throughout her career. But by the time she was famous as a comedian, it was all comedy songs. And um Men had persona, you know, Jack Benny was not a penny pincher, you know, Rodney Dangerfield, he got respect, you know, they had their stage persona, but women had to have it. Men could choose to have it. That's the big difference. And another important thing was for most of these women, they were the only one. Moms Mabley was the only woman in black vaudeville doing comedy. Minnie Pearl was the only woman in country doing comedy. Jean Carroll, the only one in her, you know, her prime doing comedy in the quote unquote mainstream. And it's very possible that they didn't even know about one another. So every choice they made about who will I be on stage? What jokes will I tell? What will my act be was in isolation. They thought they were the only one. And that has to have a tremendous impact on what you do. You know, you, you, Milton Berle finishes his bit. He can go to the bar or to the, the, the all night diner and talk with fellow comedians about what worked and what doesn't. These women weren't welcome in those conversations. The men had that enclave for themselves. And, and the uncertainty uh, that they had about their own future. Let me focus in on mom. I loved moms, Mabley. So there may not be a lot of our listeners or viewers who are going to connect with her, not remembering her, but she was amazing. I actually remember I, 
I've seen it since, but I kind of think I remember it live of when um, Hugh Hefner had a Playboy show on late at night and she sang Abraham, Martin and John at the encouragement of, I think it was Sammy Davis Jr. Mom's Mabley was, was totally amazing. And yet the life she led, um, and I write, she was always insecure, never thought she was going to be wealthy enough and, and worked as long as she could. Yeah, she was born in the 1890s in North Carolina to a family that included former slaves. She worked in, in, in the, the TOBA circuit, the Theater Owners Booking Agency, which was the black version of vaudeville, playing in all black theaters in all black neighborhoods, sometimes in blackface. Uh, which is a mind-blowing thing, but I found many references to her early in her career uh, performing in blackface. We should bet, for those who don't know her, she was black. Yeah, and <laughs> um, she she had children uh, um, after being raped as a teenager. She had just, just, you know, the life could have gone terribly sour and wrong, but she moved to Harlem in the 1920s where she was allowed to A, perform, and B, be herself. She was a queer woman. She liked to gamble. She liked to go to the track and play pinochle and Spanish pool checkers. She liked, you know, after hours places. So in that milieu, she really could sort of be herself. And it was 40 years, maybe 50 years that she was in showbiz before somebody recorded her and another 10 years before somebody put her on television. And in the last 10 years of her life, she was a national star. She played Yankee Stadium and Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta, the fabulous forum in L.A. She presented at the Grammys. Do yourselves a favor and look up her Grammy appearance with Chris Christopherson. It's comedy gold. And he's a great, uh, great foil for her. Um, she she had a feature film that she was the star of. It's it's a remarkable, true rags to riches story. You call her, you know, every in every chapter, you usually focus on one person, not always, but you usually focus on a person, and they get sort of a um, descriptor from you. You called her the philosopher. Why? You know, she was ahead of her time in many many things, but her comedy always had a social component. She was talking about race relations in America in the 20s and 30s, well before what we recognize as the civil rights movement. And by the time she did, you know, she was a sort of elder statesman and, and part of, you know, the, the, the popular culture on chess records out of Chicago and then on television. That's what she did in her act. It was all about, you know, I was talking to President Johnson the other day. And in fact, she was invited to the White House to speak to President Johnson on civil rights. But that became what she what she was known for. She was, you know, doing her bit for civil rights and advancement of 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 under underrepresented people in the veil of comedy and a great deal of her material felt to me like she she could have written it as essays instead she told it as jokes and as you move through you you then talk about Jean Carroll who we've talked about but I did say I would ask you one thing so let's just button it up uh about about Minnie Pearl who gets the next chapter who you call sunflower so why sunflower but then secondly just tell that quick story um during the war when she's performing for troops and they were just having none of it yeah she you know early in her career she was on a tour of Bases, basically a USO show sponsored by Camel Cigarettes. And they were entertaining troops who had volunteered. And then Pearl Harbor happened. And all the guys in that audience 
who had volunteered to join the army for whatever reasons, whatever branch of the service it was, realized they were now conscripted for a shooting war. And they weren't interested in being entertained by somebody telling jokes about, you know, the rural people. They wanted, you know, they wanted someone to take responsibility for this situation they found themselves in. And, and she had, she had a very hard time adjusting to that. I call her the sunflower because the character Minnie Pearl, her real name was Sarah Collie Cannon. But the character Minnie Pearl, as she and her husband, who was her manager, explained, never lost a relative. Throughout the years of her storytelling, she always talked about the same uncles and cousins and grandpas, and she never had a tear on her face. And there's a wonderful anecdote she tells on herself. She's in a supermarket near her home in Nashville, and a woman is looking at her and kind of following her around as if she wants to say something. And finally, the woman says to her, oh, Minnie Pearl. I didn't recognize you. You weren't smiling. <laughs> and to me, that's that's one of the most charming stories in the book and the essence of who she was as a character. And, and you make the point that I think her father said to her as a means of encouraging her, as long as you are nice, you will be successful. And she always was. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, Judge uh, uh, Hay was his last name. The, the fellow who founded the Grand Old Opry and was the MC gave her similar advice. Just love the people and they'll love you back. So- you then get into Sophie Tucker and others, but you know, I, I, in the time that we have, I, if I don't talk about some of the big names, I, I, I'm not doing the book justice. And, and, and this is why people are reading it. I'm going to actually go towards the end to talk sure. about Joan Rivers because anybody watching this is waiting to hear about Joan Rivers. Um, man, she just, she changed the landscape. She crossed into the men's world in terms of tonight's show, late night show and all that kind of stuff. Talk a bit about Joan Rivers, who just, who I had a chance to meet uh, on several occasions and, um, God, as tough as she was, she was so nice. I could tell you a story. I'll give you one quick story. Uh, one time I went to a book signing and I bought a bunch of books, her Heidi Abramowitz book. And at one point I went, could you just put one to Paul? Because they said, no inscriptions. She's not doing it. Only signing her name. And I said, please. And while her assistant is yelling at me saying she can't do it, Joan puts, hey, Paul, whatever, winks at me and passes it along. That's what Joan nice. Rivers was to me. Yeah, she was. I, you know, as tough as all these women were, and all of them were, were ferocious, I called Joan the scrapper because she would have done anything to get into the spotlight. She was an overnight success in 1965 after 10 years of failing as a comedian and actress. Um, she had a daytime talk show in the 60s ran for hundreds of episodes, syndicated nationwide. She wrote and starred in two Broadway plays. She was the first permanent uh, guest host of The Tonight Show. Then she went into business against The Tonight Show. And she evolved and evolved and evolved. And she's the first one of these women who truly spoke about her own life in a very raw way on stage, to the point where when her husband committed suicide in 1986, she made jokes about it in her act. And that's very modern comedy. I should mention also one of the things that she failed at was she had a very brief run at Second City uh, as one of the potential replacements for Elaine May and Barbara Harris. So she, 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 too, has a Chicago connection. And what do you think, so many of them do, by the way, what, what do you think was about Joan Rivers? Because while she was always popular, I want to say that in her, in her final, I don't know, decade, some period of life, she just became large in life. I mean, the, the Joan Rivers of the Ed Sullivan days, my husband came home, I was naked in saran wrap, he said leftovers again. You know, she was always funny. 
but she just crossed the line. And I think in her final tour, which I saw she toured with Don Rickles, it was the bite. And maybe as a woman that made a difference. I don't know. But what something about her was magical. You know, she had to evolve because as her life became more glamorous and more successful, even with the tragedy of her husband's suicide, she had everything she had fought for. So she found new ways to be funny. And one of the ways was, quote unquote, insult humor. And she did that a lot in the 80s and 90s. She died only about 10 years ago. And she she evolved past that. You know, she she went to the red carpet stuff, uh, prod, um, you know, at the Oscars and Emmys and things like that. And she became sort of a cultural icon. You know, the, you last long enough in showbiz and people start to realize, oh, you know, sort of my reaction to Minnie Pearl. Oh, there's a reason this person has been successful for 50 years. And Joan Rivers was always thoughtful to other performers. She got kicked in the teeth a lot coming up. And one of the things she did that, you know, I consider, you know, for want of a, a feminine term, menshi, you know, she acted like a mensch in supporting younger comedians. So the, the women who I spoke to as I was preparing the book, Kathy Griffin, Rita Rudd, Lisa Lampanelli, several others, when they talked about Joan, they said, oh, I never performed with her, but boy, she was nice to me. Or boy, she gave me some advice once that's always stuck with me. And and that, you know, that's that's rare in showbiz. You know, it's a doggy dog milieu. And yet she could be vicious on stage and nurturing off. What a loss. Another favorite. I mean, Phil's Diller, we've got to talk about and Tony Fields. And I'm just a huge. I'm going to go to Tony Fields next because I just loved her. So much. And some of our, I admit, some of our viewers may say, oh, I haven't heard of Tody Fields. I get that. But her, her attacks on her husband, Georgie, she got ill. She had diabetes. She lost a leg and kept on performing. And especially, I would have to say, in the Jewish community, like where I grew up, she was huge. Yeah, she was, she was a tremendous star in the mid-60s to the mid-70s when she passed, very young. Um, complications of what had been a plastic surgery operation that cost her a leg. She had a couple of heart attacks. She had breast cancer while recovering from the heart attacks. Just, just a nightmare. So I think she's forgotten because, you know, her, her time in the spotlight was so brief, even though she was everywhere. If you, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old. You came home from school and turned on game shows or or the afternoon talk, talk, Mike Douglas, Douglas, Merv Griffin, there would be Tony Fields. She would be the, you know, she'd be on the Sonny and Cher show or the Tonight Show. She was everywhere. And she was a, a tiny woman, full figured. And she joked about how sexy she was and how vampy she was and, you know, how fashionable and chic and how all the men want her. And she had the joke of a lifetime in her first performance after her leg was amputated. She came out on stage in Vegas and came up to the mic and said, I finally weigh less than Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> and she had 20 years of preparing the audience for that joke. And that seems to be a running theme too. The, the notion of self-deprecating, because even Joan Rivers, while she was attacking Edgar, she wasn't. It was really self-deprecating humor. Yes. Is that something that we also have to attach to? Because I, I don't see uh, male comedians doing the same kind. I mean, maybe Rodney Dangerfield, but, but even do. then it was different. Yeah, I think the difference is again with the, the like being a clown. Some men can choose to be a fool, like the, the Jim Varney character, or you know weirdos like Emo Williams, uh, Emo Phillips, Emo or Phillips, Stephen yeah. Wright. But the women had to do that. Similarly, they all beat up on themselves. You know, Phyllis Diller was a very attractive woman. In fact, 
when Hugh Hefner tried to shoot her for Playboy, thinking it would be funny, they had to throw the pictures out because she was actually attractive. You actually started. That's, that's what I wanted to say about Phyllis Diller. Her whole shtick was that she's ugly and whatever going after her. And, and, and yet when you could see her off the stage or in a, because she did, let's put it this way. She was able to make herself look unattractive, had a ton of plastic surgery. She was a very nice looking woman. Yeah, early she was a mother of five who, you know, this this is an old fashioned concept, kept her figure. Um, she she had to perform in in you know ill fitting clothes because when she wore snug clothes, people could see this is a this woman has a, a, a nice body. She's 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 conventionally attractive. So she wore a shock wig, she wore garish makeup, she wore outrageous 60s fashions. She always did, you know, more to exaggerate herself so she wouldn't be looked at as pretty. And then she would talk about how, you know, the peeping Tom called her and said, please draw your, your blinds, <laughs> right. you know, these type of jokes. And, you know, uh, she loved going to the doctor because it was the only place a man would say, take off your clothes. <laughs> um, and, and that wasn't who she was. You know, she had boyfriends and lovers after after her long marriage ended and and she was. If you pass her on the street, you say, that's a nice looking person, but that wasn't the act. And lest, I mean, just in case somebody's watching us right now and said, you know, this conversation, that's kind of a bit sexist, whatever that you're having that. But the bottom line is the men who were performing at the same time, the point is the women had to be aware of it. Men could look like schleps, Jackie Vernon, pick whoever you want. They could be schleps. They didn't have to worry about their look like the women did. And so it might sound like a sexist conversation, but it is a reflection of the reality at that time. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I consistently in writing this book tried to put myself in the mentality, not of the era, but of the woman who could see beyond the era. Because remember, all these things we're saying were obstacles for them. They had to have a comic persona that was unattractive. They had to talk about themselves in a denigrating way. Jean Carroll talks about this quite a bit in the chapter on her about how if you put yourself down, then the men don't feel like they have to, you know, knock you down. Um, the men in the audience and the women can feel like, oh, you know, she's kind of just like me. She's not a glamour girl. But they also had to do other things the men didn't have to do. They were all mothers and homemakers. Right. Bob Hope, Milton Berle, Jack, uh, Rodney Dangerfield, they didn't have to worry about daycare or a sick kid at home. These women all had that responsibility in addition to the hard business, no matter your gender, of creating a career in comedy. I, I find them incredibly heroic. I was so happy that near the end of the book, you make reference to a lot of the current day comedians. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Rita Rudner, you can go on and on. You could almost look at every one of those people we look at today and tie them to somebody in the future, in the past who had to have been a role model for them. Whoopi Goldberg, Moms Mabley, that you could just see they looked to these people in the past as their icons and heroes. Yeah. I mean, comedy in that sense is sort of like uh, jazz or folk music, that there are precursors and roots people. And then the contemporary people sort of go back and discover aspects of themselves in someone from a previous generation. Um, what hasn't changed is there's still a glass ceiling, despite the massive fame of people like Ali Wong, Tiffany Haddish, Mindy Kalin, Amy Schumer. You can't think of a bigger star than Amy Schumer. But if you actually crunch numbers, you see that she gets a, a shorter piece of the stick than 
The men do. Um, you, you actually walk through a little math in the book. There's a, I don't remember what the event was you wrote about, but it was something she did with a bunch of male comedians. She got, I think, 17 million, if I have that right, but that was paled in comparison to what everybody else got. Men. Yeah, it was Netflix paid her approximately 40% of what they played, paid Kevin Hart for the same amount of specials. Or when she made the Forbes list of the 10 highest earning comedians of the year, which is an annual thing, got interrupted with COVID. But she's made that list three times. And all three times, it was on the strength of a feature film or a massive best-selling book or a new TV deal. And she was never higher than fifth or sixth on that list. And literally in front of her all three times was a ventriloquist <laughs> who works in Las Vegas. Gary Fainer. Maybe the greatest ventriloquist who ever lived. But I would argue that, you know, what Amy Schumer does and who she is in the culture is a slightly bigger thing. But th- those those biases still persist, even in what you would call if not the golden age of women in comedy, the most golden age so far of women in comedy. Well, and I, I'm glad you said that because, of course, well, I haven't mentioned Lily Tomlin. Let's toss her name in here, too. You do write a little bit about her. But is there anybody, is there a volume two to this book? Or do you look at the personalities of today and say, no, I don't need a volume two because I've said what needs to be said in in on the joke. You know, my my bailiwick as, as a showbiz a pop culture historian seems to be sort of like from, from Pearl Harbor to Woodstock. And uh, this story ends with Joan Rivers. Most histories of women in comedy, and there are a few, I mentioned them in the introduction, and, and they're in the bibliography, begin with Joan Rivers, because she's the first superstar who nobody could deny. And I, I feel like the, that what's happening today is changing by the minute, and it is so widespread and so variegated that it can't be captured in a book. You, know, you have women appearing on stages all over the country, on podcasts, on YouTube, on TikTok, on on on, t- on TV specials, on sitcoms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You have women of all stripes. You know, all of them might be able to, you know, sort of you see them as tributaries of of one of the big streams defined by the women in my book. But the the landscape is so filled with them now that I don't think it could be captured in a single book. So issues have changed. Wanda Sykes, I mean, different people who get into, you know, uh, LGBTQ issues. I mean, it's just, yeah, the world is a bit different today in terms of what it was. The title of the book, In on the Joke, I didn't know what it meant. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess. But I but when I but now I get it after I read it. It's not you who who was in on the joke. No. Your whole point was it's them. They were always yeah. in on the joke. They were in on the joke and they had to fight to get into the, the 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 comedy world. You know, titling this book was really hard. I mentioned why isn't she singing? We went back and forth and back and forth and I must give credit to the fellow who designed the book jacket. Because up until I saw the the treatment of the letters in this kind of nightclub neon lettering, I wasn't sold on it. And as soon as I saw that image, I was like, oh, this is the perfect title. Even then, I kicked back a little. My editor was like, no, 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 no. This is is what we're going with. Um, But it was a hard book to title. And sometimes the first thing that's come to me writing a book has been the title. So I was grateful when we finally nailed this one and really pleased with it once I saw it. That's funny, yeah, because actually the couple of the books I wrote, I knew the first line of the book and what the title would be, but that's all I had. Uh, <laughs> and my editor in the end wanted me to cut the first line. I went, oh, no, 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 I've been waiting right. too many years for that to be the, we find the defendant guilty. That's where this book starts. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, as you look at all the, the women that you covered and I admire just so many of them, is there anybody that you look at and said, look, if, if viewers of this interview and people who read the book, if they want to go on and check on somebody, look further, who, who do you say, look at these women? Well, Moms Mabley, if, if people don't know Moms Mabley, they need to know her. She, she's a crucial figure in American culture, it seems to me. She, she was a standard bearer for an entire portion of the population. Elaine May is finally getting her due. She turned 90 uh, back in yeah. April and was given an honorary Oscar at the show that we don't remember because there was a slap involved. And um, Phyllis Diller, who I thought was insubstantial. You know, growing up with her doing one liners, you know, she could do like 14 jokes about being old in a minute. And she used a stopwatch to refine that technique. And she, you know, the first time she took the stage to tell jokes, she was a 37 year old mother of five. That would be remarkable today. She did it 70 years ago. So, you know, as I say, all of these women are heroes, but if you only looked up three of them, Moms Mabley, Elaine May, Phyllis Diller, you, you, you know, that, that's a good start on the Mount Rushmore of, of women comedians. Yeah. And I'm going to add Tody Fields. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Tody Fields. I'm so grateful because even with her in the book, people haven't asked me a lot about her and she is unfairly forgotten. And she was, she was a true you know, breath of fresh air in, in yeah. her time. Got to be of a certain age. You also have a great story in the book of Elaine May, if I have it right, where she won a Tony Award. And, and you, you, you have so many scripts where she basically wins a Tony. Basically, there was another actor who, you know, who yeah. and he goes, I'm taking the Tony from that guy. Yeah, yeah. If look up Moms Mabley and Chris Christopherson at the Grammys and look up Elaine May's Tony Award acceptance <laughs> speech, you, you, two, three, five minutes, very well spent. The book is so well-documented, so well-researched, and it's right in line with just such the great writing, Sean, that, that you've done. Well, As I you. said, when I saw you on our morning show, I went, I've got to talk to this guy. <laughs> and I thank you so much for agreeing to do it. The book is the original Queens of Stand-Up Comedy, In on the Joke. If you are at all into, you don't have to be into women in comedy. If you're into comedy in general, you need to understand how these women paved the way for themselves, for men, for so many other people. It's just it is such a critical topic and so well written. I thank you and uh, I, I congratulate you on the great work. And I just, uh, it, it's going to stand proudly on my bookshelf. Oh, that's wonderful. Thanks so much. I'll wait for the next book. Sometimes oh, yeah. written about somebody before Woodstock. I'll look forward to that. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Sean Levy, the book is In on the Joke. It's available on Amazon or wherever better books are sold. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from Behind the Curtain.